This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, hello, hello. Sorry, everyone, we're late. We're five minutes late. Is that a record? It's not great. It's not great as a professional show. One of the guests had technical problems. Basically, because people are going to the Labour Party conference, which I'm going to go to, can't wait. It's like going to the dentist for four days. Um, people are traveling, they're on trains. It's all very complicated and chaotic. But we are here. I'm going to Labour Party conference shortly. If my Wi-Fi can see it doesn't collapse by then. Brilliant. We're off to a flying start. So we've got a very special show today. We're going to do two things. We're going to talk about the mini budget. Uh, we're going to talk about that with Grace Blakely, who's one of the best economic thinkers on the left. Or just generally, why not? Let's just give her that title. Uh, and we're going to talk to James Schneider, who uh, used to work uh, for Jamie Corbyn and various other things, journalists, but has just written a new book called Our Block, which we will give lots of love and tell you all to buy. Um, and here we're talking with Miss Rahman, who used to be on Labour's NEC, about Labour's response to what we're talking about today, which is declaration of class war by the Conservative Party. Now, just quick before we bring in Grace, before, when I was growing up, I, grew up, I was born in Sheffield, grew up in Stockport with a, a quite left-wing family, I'll be honest with you. Um, I didn't grow up enamoured with the Conservative Party, let's just put it bluntly. So that was where I started, but it was really Oxford, where I was an undergrad, which I think really sharpened that. Um, I uh, I met Conservative, I met people who went to private school for the first time. I also met people who were Conservatives for the first time in my life, uh, some of whom are now running the country. The year below me was someone called Simon Clark, who I'm sure you've seen lots of, um, including his uh, Conservative friends, some of whom... I remember were viciously homophobic uh, and are now uh, senior figures or have stood for the Conservative Party. I might explain more about that at some other time. But I just want to tell you this little anecdote, So, which I wrote about in my first book, Chance of the Demonization of the Working Class. So the master of the college I was at, University College Oxford, was a guy called Lord Butler Brockwell, who used to be head of the civil service. And he went on to do, if you remember, the Iraq War Inquiry. Anyway, he would bring in, he had a lot, he was very well connected, and he brought in all sorts of esteemed powerful people he knew. Um, and one of them, I can't tell you who, was a senior conservative. I can't tell you why, because these talks were on the on the off the record basis, Chatham House rules. Um, and if I reveal anyone who speaks off the record, then no one will ever speak to me off the record again. That's how it works. Anyway, he said, this is what he said, what you had, he told, you know, the fireside was crackling away, lots of disproportionately quite privileged Oxford students, he said, what you have to realise about the Conservative Party is that it's a coalition of privileged interests. Its main purpose is to defend that privilege. And the way it wins elections is by giving just enough to just other people. He said it in such a casual, matter-of-fact way. But he was absolutely right. That is, of course, the Conservatives, born in their modern form in the 1830s, representing economic elites. But when you got mass suffrage, everyone could vote. You can't, you know, it's not just the super rich running the show. 
you have to find a way to win elections. You have to build a coalition that isn't just multi-billionaires. And the Conservatives, you know, Lord Salisbury, an early Conservative Prime Minister, he was astounded to discover that a third of manual workers voted Conservative. There are lots of reasons why, historically. One of the heartlands of working-class Conservatism, for example, for a long time is Liverpool. <laughs> Not something that remains the case anymore because of sectarian divisions. The same was in Glasgow. Most of Scotland voted for the Conservatives in 1955, higher proportion than the English. Mm -hmm. so things change a lot, as you can see. Um, uh, but, you know, it's when by kind of targeting particular parts of the electorate, more privileged sections of the working class, for example, uh, often bigotry, tapping into people's fears about the other to redirect anger and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Now, I thought about this anecdote because of this budget, mini budget, which has just been uh, obviously announced by Liz Truss's government. Oh, my word. Wow. They certainly certainly gone all in, haven't they? Ooh. Basically, a lot of Conservative MPs hated Boris Johnson because he thought he was too left-wing on the economy. They think they've had 12 years of power and they haven't done proper Conservative policies. And now they're like, with no electoral mandate, they're like, let's do this. We're going all in. Um, now, because my internet's quite bad, I'm just going to quickly just give a quick sum up, summary of what exactly the mini budget uh, kind of represents. Here, here we go. Poor brand, ITV, um, sets it out very well. Top rate of tax, 45 to uh, cut from 45 to 40. Basic rate cut uh, from 20 to 19. National insurance cut. Stamp duty abolished below 250,000. Abolished below 435 for first time buyers. Corporation tax rise cancelled and no cap on bankers bonuses of course while benefit claimants will be hammered martin lewis from next april the 45 percent rate of tax applies to those earning 150,000 will be scrapped so the top rate of tax will be the 40 percent high rate threshold this means mega earners pay the same rate as those on 50,000 pounds um in in jolly and morn um QC. Liz Truss's budget means those earning a million a year will have 50, 50, over 54,000 extra in their pockets after tax and national insurance. For those earning 25 grand, the equivalent figure is about 280 quid. Hard to imagine a worse response for a cost of living uh, crisis. Um, in we can look, keep going, because we're going to talk with Grace about this. How much people save. Jim Pickard at the FT. The reductions in income tax mean that an individual earning 20 grand stands to make annual tax savings of nearly £4,500 in 23-24 compared to 22-23. A worker on a salary of 20 grand will save 218 uh, quid. Lovely stuff, as we can all see. Now, if we want to see class war in a graph, here it is. For those listening on the podcast, uh, what it does is it shows a huge saving for those in the top decile and barely anything for those in the bottom 50%. Little surprise then that YouGov, uh, a poll of the British electorate, a snap poll, showed, uh, do you, asked, do you think the changes the Chancellor announced this week will make people like you better or worse off? Only 1% uh, said much better off, 18% uh, said a little better off, no difference, 34%, and then 12% a little worse off, 16% much worse off. And... Um, Unsurprisingly, the electorate, 63% think it will benefit wealthier people more um, and 3% think it will benefit poorer people more. Those 3% obviously are living on another planet. Now, the pound has crashed. <laughs> well, it went down a lot and um, quite steeply. Didn't respond hugely well, which is interesting because this is a government of capital that capital's kind of freaked out, if I'm honest. 
Right, because my internet is a little dodgy today, because we didn't nationalise it, because people unfortunately didn't choose the right option in 2019, I'm going to bring in someone. Before I do, press like if you're watching live, press a YouTube link, because we prefer you to watch on YouTube, press subscribe, and do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. Going to Labour Conference today, don't know what I did in a past life to deserve this, but it was obviously pretty bad. We're doing a video, though, thanks to you. You support us. We pay our videographer union wages, uh, thanks to your support, uh, 400 quid a day. So please do, uh, you know, to get these documentaries. We're doing one at Tory Party Conference as well. Do support us um, on patreon.com forward slash homage I'm doing a post later to ask you what we should be asking at Labour Party Conference. Grace, I'm just going to bring you in because my internet's terrible. Your internet's pristine. So Well... I'm not in my own house, so that's probably why. <laughs> probably my why. My internet yeah. was absolutely fine until I had to come on air. So that's, that it's really is babe. handy. Again, what have you done in a past life? Bad karma. You're racking it up. I mean, the stuff I've done in my current life is bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't talk about that because it's a PG show. Um, <laughs> great. WTF. What's go- Just explain. Just explain succinctly, sum up this budget, because I think a lot of people, we saw what Liz Truss was saying in a leadership campaign, unlike Keir Starmer, oh, she's she stuck to her leadership pledges and mm. more, I would say. How do you support this budget? I think it's interesting, right? Because you said, um, you said there in your introduction that, you know, this is a party of capital. And that's obviously true. You know, the Conservative Party was created to represent the, well, initially kind of to represent the interests of um, the feudal aristocracy. And then as, you know, British society changed, um, it adapted basically to kind of come to represent the interests of uh, of capital as well. And this is why we have this quite... Um, you know, organised ruling class in the UK is because we had this transition from feudalism to capitalism where the old elites weren't gotten rid of, as we know, with the monarchy. They were kind of fused into this new block under the the supervision of the Conservative Party. Um, So the Conservative Party has historically been very good at managing shifts in um, like the social structure, macroeconomic shifts to make sure that, as you say, you know, they're defending the privilege of those at the very top, but not just defending the privilege of those at the very top, actually defending the class structure of our society. So it's not necessarily always about, I think this is a really important point when we think about the role of the capitalist state. It's not just about protecting specific people. It often is. And, you know, we do see examples kind of over and outright corruption. But more than that, it's about protecting the structure of society. So protecting the fact that we live in a world where some people own all the stuff and other people have to sell their labour power for a living. And of course, there are all sorts of different, you know, uh, fractions within that class of, you know, people who own all the stuff. But generally speaking, you know, they are the ones that are in charge. They're in charge of the economy. They own the things. And they're also you know, the best able to kind of influence how decisions are are made as well in our political sphere. So that kind of fusion of political and economic power um, is, you know, it exists in all capitalist societies, but in the UK with, with the British state, this old imperial state that contains all these layers of, uh, you know, this sedimented class privilege, um, our ruling class has generally been quite good at managing different crises of capitalism to ensure that they stay in control. What we're seeing now is really interesting because it looks as though they're not doing that as well as they have done in the past. And there are a number of different reasons for this. So first and foremost, they there aren't a lot of kind of talented, good, clever politicians who would be able to act in, a, in the way that would be required to allow us to get through this crisis. So James will will talk about this later because he's written about it in his book. Um, Antonio Gramsci has this idea that during 
moments of really deep crises. You get um, figures like Napoleon and Caesar, who are really strong, charismatic figureheads who are able to kind of um, overcome the individualistic interests of all the different people within their class and just say, this is what we're going to do. We're moving forward in this direction. And in doing so, even if they harm individuals, they solve the whole crisis. Um, and this is kind of what like Boris Johnson presented himself as, right? He was like, we're going to do Brexit. That'll keep us electorally sound. And we're also going to do some sort of changes to the way that the economy works to solve this long-term crisis that we're experiencing. That has clearly broken down with Liz Trust. But the other issue here, as well as those, those questions around individuals and personalities, we can talk a bit more about this, is that we are in a really deep and actually quite long-term structural crisis of capitalism. Um, and there's a, a lot of different parts of that. So there's this productivity crisis, which is about investment. And that goes back 40, 50 years. And then there's the climate crisis, which, again, is really, really significant. And there are all the political crises that are interwoven within that. And what we're seeing with this Conservative Party is it lurching from one solution to another, trying to see what sticks, like how can we solve this crisis? The issue is, of course, is that there is no way, really, of solving the crisis that we're in now whilst maintaining the structure of our society whilst maintaining capitalist social relations. So that's why it's kind of the Conservative Party is kind of careening in all these different directions, trying to figure out what to do. It's because there is really nothing that they can do, that they can do. I mean, you know, the Tories as a party of capital, capital has not responded well. What's that about? Well, I mean, this is exactly the point, right? Because, um, you know, capital in general, let's say, um, the, the interests of capital in general, right, which is a very diverse group that spans the world, that spans lots of different industries, is, as I've said, the maintenance of capitalist social relations and the stability of the status quo, basically, because that is what allows them generally to kind of make profits. This was why there are all these splits among the ruling class about Brexit, right, because in some camps it was going to facilitate a kind of disaster capitalist um you know, super extractivist agenda that would allow them to make lots of money. But for a large portion of capital, it was seen as a negative because it would destabilise things. Um, and today as well, we are seeing divides within that block. So generally speaking, capital wants, you know, stability, the maintenance of the status quo, etc. Um, but there are, you know, a whole array of different kind of subsets of interests within that, especially if you think, you know, we're never just talking about British capital here because, you know, we live in a highly globalised world. We're talking about global capital. Our economy is highly globalised. So a lot of the businesses that are headquartered here make most of their money abroad. We import a huge amount of what we consume. We are, you know, embedded in a, a global economy um, and that kind of mediates what our ruling class is able to do, what our economy looks like, etc. Um, so first and foremost, instability, the, the instability that we're going to be seeing as a result of this budget, both economic and political, will be a cause for concern for capital everywhere. Um, you know, the idea, this is, again, the reason that they were also like, capital all over the world was like pissed off at the idea of a, a Corbyn government. It would cause instability, potentially threats to their kind of, you know, ability to control the economy, threats to their power, etc. Even if actually a lot of the policies that Corbyn had brought in would have made our economy more productive over the long run. You know, we're not just talking about growth or even just like profits what we're actually talking about is is power and control um which is really what you know 
a class divided society is about. It's not just about making sure that the capitalists are able to make money. It's about being sure that they're able to control the people who are supposed to work for them and, and the society in general. So there are these questions around the stability of the social order and what this budget does to it, because people know that it's going to make our society much more unequal, potentially lead to, lead to political unrest. But also these questions about Britain's, um, you know, role and place within the world economy. Now, there are all these people saying, without even like a hint of irony, Britain's becoming an emerging market economy. Now, you can't become an emerging market economy if you already emerged. It's in the name. But anyway, the idea is that, you know, we, we look like a kind of unstable, small, growing um, economy, you know, maybe that's in the global south, um, that has an unstable exchange rate, that is heavily reliant upon imports, um, that is, you know, maybe um, very unbalanced, uh, whether that's kind of in terms of inequality or geographically, we know that we're a very kind of unequal economy. Um, and that when you look into the future, you cannot really necessarily see a way of sustaining the comparative advantage that it currently has. So of sustaining its particular economic model. For us, for a very long time, that's been like financial services and professional services, basically, that have sustained a much broader service economy. Um, but it's hard to see how that continues now when you have a really unstable currency, when you have instability, you know, all of these things are really important for the kind of um, the maintenance of, of, uh, of Britain's role as a financial services exporter, as well as the fact that we've left the European Union, which again undercuts that. Um, so that's another source of concern, Britain's role in the world economy. And then it's the fact as well that our ruling class is showing us once again, is showing the world once again, that it does not have the answers to these long-term structural problems. The main ones being productivity crisis, climate crisis, and democratic crisis. So some commentators have made a comparison with the 1972 budget, the Anthony Barber budget under the Conservative government of Ted Heath. That's the last time you had tax cuts as big as this. That's half a century ago. Didn't end well, no. uh, to put it bluntly. No. So just tell us kind of with that kind of historical context, because, because you know, um, Tim Montgomery, who was a senior conservative commentator, he's worked for Boris Johnson himself. The point he made is now that this is Britain has been turned into a laboratory for the Institute for Economic Affairs, which is a right wing think tank, which really laid the intellectual groundworks for Thatcherism. Um, and that Britain is now its laboratory. Essentially, we're the lab rats. <laughs> um, given the historical context, what do you think the likely impacts are, given, for example, interest rates are going up, and given lots of economic commentators have made the point that it's true interest rates have been much higher in the past, but actually it's not comparing like and like, and people's ability to absorb interest rate hikes is actually significantly lower and the equivalent of i don't know like five percent now would be like 14 yeah. percent of that so sorry that was a lot to kind of throw in but what do you think generally the kind of economic consequences will be given what we know from history and given where we are with interest rates yeah so this is an interesting comparison i think um, because i think the 1970s was the last time we had a kind of similar <laughs> structural crisis of our economic model of the kind that we're experiencing today there are very important differences so firstly you know today it is much clearer to see that britain is not it is an outlier in some ways but it's not an outlier in other ways because this is these crises that we're seeing are global crises whether you think about the productivity problem or climate problem the climate crisis or whatever um you know a lot of a lot of countries are facing these struggles at the same time we're just dealing with it particularly badly in the 1970s britain was a bit of an outlier we were the sick man of europe um and the again you know we were we were experiencing 
what amounted to at that time a breakdown of the old model of organizing the economy which was the kind of Keynesian model um, and the Keynesian model kind of actually did quite a lot for capital so it provided that stability both political and economic um, it was associated with you know relatively high levels of investment whether that was from the public sector or the private sector um, which meant that you know there was um, productivity growth was fine basically um, investment is this really key thing um, that kind of determines you know a lot of stuff around productivity around growth uh, employment etc and we have a really big investment problem in this country why aren't people investing why aren't capitalists investing well it's because they can't see a future in which Britain is you know productive and able to um, an, an economy in which they will get a good return on that investment. Um, so, you know, that those those issues were kind of resolved in the post-war period with that Keynesian model. The issue with the Keynesian model was that I said earlier about how, you know, the, the role of the, the capitalist state in our society isn't just to protect the wealth of capital, it's pr to protect the power of the ruling class. The Keynesian model um, kind of undermined the power of the ruling class a bit. Why did it do that? Well, because organised labour had a role in shaping state policy. So the unions were kind of involved to a greater or lesser extent in um, like not macroeconomic decisions, but certainly the way in which policymakers decided uh, what they were going to do. They had to think about the labour movement. They had to think about the labour movement because the labour movement was strong and powerful and they could shut the economy down, basically. So you had what was called this corporatist model, where the state mediates between bosses and workers and the, the eventual kind of policy outcomes of that take account of all those different interest groups. Now, that model breaks down in the 1970s for a lot of reasons. Global macroeconomic crisis, inflationary shock driven by an oil price spike. Now, what we know about inflationary shocks is that they um, make this uh, struggle between capital and labor much more fraught because these inflationary questions are a question of who gets what, who has to pay for rising prices. Um, so that helps to break down, oh, there's two of you. <laughs> oh God, sorry. <laughs> what I've done there, because I was so worried about my camera just taking, just the internet just collapsing. I did this as a sort of, Insurance policy, but I didn't realize I added myself. Carry I mean, on. Everywhere. I have no problem with there being two of you, but whatever. It would be great for the left if there were two of one, you. Once more than sufficient. Carry <laughs> on. So, yeah, inflationary crisis makes these this class struggle between capital and labor much more fraught. Um, you have, you know, all throughout the 1970s, kind of similar situation to what we've seen over the last 10 years. So, um, you know, government after government being quite unstable, not really knowing how to deal with this crisis, flipping between different solutions. Um, you also had inflation, stagnation, um, and you know ultimately uh, a big uptick in um, in industrial action. So the barber boom was, um, you know, it was early 1970s before the oil price spike actually, and uh, it was one of the ways in which the Conservative Party thought kind of, I suppose, the beginnings of this neoliberal push, which was to say, we're going to solve this crisis by just handing loads of power over to capitalists, basically. It didn't work very well because he wasn't able to push through the kind of structural changes that would be required to have made it work. And those structural changes were basically defeating the labour movement. Of course, what we know is at the end of the 1970s, Margaret Thatcher comes in and she finally defeats Keynesianism, where so many previous conservative chancellors have failed to do. And in doing so, she paves the way for the emergence of this new model, which again is based on the just massive concentration of power in the hands of, uh, of capital, of finance capital in particular. Now, that solved the crisis. It solved it in favour of capital, but it solved the crisis. You know, we moved into a new era 
of um you know of of growth and prosperity to some for some insecurity for others but it you know we had a, a period of growth in which capital flooded into the uk we had a big housing boom obviously it paved the way for the financial crisis but we didn't know that at the time so it kind of kicked off this new era i suppose what we're looking at now is a similar sort of situation where the conservative party is kind of clasping like grasping around looking for a set of policies that will allow them to do what they did at the end of the 1970s and usher in a new period of growth that marks a break with that old period of, you know, the old model, basically. The issue is, is that what Truss is trying to do is do Thatcherism all over again when she's when, you know, the Conservative already did Thatcherism. You know, we can't get back to growth by defeating the Labour movement, by massively cutting taxes on the rich, by deregulating the city, because we've already done all of those things. We can't privatise more stuff because we've already privatised so much stuff. So really, she's got this backward looking idea as to how we're going to get out of this crisis that isn't going to do anything. It's just going to deepen the contradictions that we're already seeing as a result of that model. So just go, leading on to this, because we've, so I should say, I'll read everyone's super chats and thank everyone's super chats at the end. But there's two kind of conflicting looks at this and super chats. So Craig Berkey says, you know, this is a bribe for 2019 voters. There'll be a general election this summer and there'll be a Tory majority off the back of it. Livian takes a different opposite stance. Tories have gone for mass costs because they know they're going to lose the next election. So strategy is to do as much damage as they can in two years. Now, if we look at, we've seen the, the polling on the budget, really terrible. Um, in terms of the, the public have got, got the gist of it. Mm. It's a class war budget. That's yeah, what people yeah. think. It helps the wealthy. It screws yeah. everybody, everybody else. That's the gist. And if we look at the polling, I mean, honestly. Yeah, that's great. He's got bad ratings. Keir Starmer, yeah. opposition leader, but... Liz Truss has 49% unfavourable, 17% mm. favourable. Starmer's on 45% unfavourable, 27% favourable. I guess, where are you, it is, just for a minute, you know, economic, I'm, it's a political question, but obviously, they, obviously economics and politics, you can't separate the two. Um, but in terms of, obviously, as I went back to the point, I, I made at the point, at the beginning about the Tories being a, a party that represents capital, but in a democracy with a universal franchise yeah. where they have to win over, they have to build a coalition of voters. In terms of the economic impact of this, what do you think that actually means for the Tories being able to build an electoral coalition, including, let's say, in the so-called Red Wall? A lot of those are homeowners. People are construed as just being a kind of working class base when actually often they're older homeowners in ex-industrial towns. What do you think the economic impact will be on elements of the Tory electoral yep. coalition, which they need to win an election? What I would say to people when we're thinking about this question, and I think this is really, really important, is don't just think about the next election cycle. Because the Conservative Party, they're not just thinking about the next election cycle. I mean, again, to go back to that Thatcher analogy, Thatcher introduced policies that were deeply, deeply unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, but she did so um, you know, alongside other things that were popular, alongside really kind of kicking off early sets of culture wars and that sort of stuff um but she did so in 28 yeah. yeah literally yeah yeah exactly she did so because the conservative party was trying to figure out a way of stabilizing the social order in favor of capital right and that's a longer term challenge that this conservative party is trying to do today if people go away you know from this uh interview with one thing i want it to be basically that that you know they're looking for a way of building a new model of growth a new way of organizing the economy in the context of deep crises that basically can't be solved so we're going to see a lot of instability a lot of kind of you know 
different sets of policies being fired off in all these different directions. A lot of uh, commentators, um, think tanks, trying to come up with ways of, of dealing with these crises whilst basically keeping everything the same. So in that context, yes, this is likely to hurt Truss's base, um, particularly in the Red Wall, but just more generally, because, you know, when you have um, the focus on an economic agenda like this, um, you know, the Tories will always do stuff that benefits the rich over everyone else, right? But when you have the headlines being grabbed by the economic policies of the Conservative Party, generally speaking, um, then you know, that is going to frame the discussion in a way that is not good for them. So it's not just yeah, about I mean, the kind of objective material impact, which will be bad. It's about the way in which this budget frames discussion. And as long as we're talking about inequality, it's bad for the Conservatives. As long as we're talking about the way that the economy is fucked, because they've been in power for so long, it's bad for the Conservatives. They yeah. need us to be talking about culture war shit, which is why the Boris Johnson strategy was actually much better for them. Yeah, but I mean, just to say the precedent of Thatcherism. So, you know, Thatcherism did monstrously unpopular economic things. So by 1981, you had mass unemployment in Britain and... Three million. One million. Exactly. Three so what, million so, market, but, yeah. Exactly. So in 1979, there was a million and, and a big Saatchi very effective Tory attack line was Labour isn't working with a site with a picture of a unemployment queue and then they trebled it. Mass devastation, the economy and all the rest of it. But they had four years. They had North Sea oil, for example. Yeah. yeah. They could yeah. privatise yeah. things. And then, I mean, they, I suppose they did more privatisation in the second term. But I mean, you know, they, they had ways of getting revenue in kind of thing. Yeah. But, so but this is two years. They've already done Thatcherism yeah. <laughs> as it is. Um, they don't have something like North Sea Oil. I mean, they yeah. could have something like, I mean, there was the Falcons War as well. You had the Labour Party splitting at the time. I mean, obviously we've had the Keir Starmer wage war on the left, but we don't yeah. have two parties competing for the Tory. It doesn't seem, they don't have the same favourable things on their side. That no, they is. don't. And I think a lot of Tories know this. And I think a lot of reason, a, lot, a big part of the reason that um, so many Conservatives ended up lining up behind Liz Truss. And I've actually heard... Conservative MPs say this. They don't think they're going to win the next election. They didn't think they were going to win the next election anyway, but it kind of doesn't matter. They know that they'll potentially not win, but that Keir Starmer isn't really much of a threat, that maybe he has, you know, a minority government or goes into coalition with the SNP or something, which, you know, really opens up huge kind of attack line potential. And then we enter into another period of instability. Maybe, you know, the, that government doesn't last its entire term or maybe it does, but it becomes very unpopular, they're able to then reinvent themselves as the Conservative Party often does in opposition because it's easier to reinvent yourself in opposition than it is in government and come back with a solution to some of these crises that I've been talking about that actually allows them to re-establish their dominance and hegemony. Hegemony meaning this Gramscian term, meaning kind of like whole scale dominance of all areas of society. So not just being in control of the you know material stuff but actually being able to kind of have ideological control of, of, uh, of society as well um i personally think that that is a more likely scenario so we end up going into the next election liz trust being very unpopular but she's you know is basically thrown under the bus by her party anyway um we end up with you know uh potentially a Labour government but not one that has a particularly big majority or that looks very stable Liz Truss is replaced as a leader they get someone better and maybe they bring back Boris Johnson who knows um and then we move into a, a, another terrain again because of course Keir Starmer is not going to be able to do anything to solve any of these crises anyway not only 
does he not have the capacity to do so because of the social forces that underpin his leadership? I don't think he even really understands them. I certainly don't think the people behind him understand the kind of crises that we are in at the moment. And if they do, they see their role as as similar to the Conservative parties, basically kind of shoring up stability and, and the social order as it is potentially by, you know, alleviating some of the strain on on the poorest while basically keeping everything the same. Um, so, yeah, I mean, potentially this does lose the, ne- the next election, but it also it also potentially builds um, a, a new kind of foundation of support after the election for a different kind of model or a different kind of way of responding to these crises. Because basically, you know, we'll come out of this with Liz Truss having tried factorism on steroids, which is what people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and other members of the ERG have been arguing for for a very long time. They've been saying, look, we just need to do factorism again. When they've done that and it doesn't work, they're kind of beaten back a bit. And you you kind of, I think other elements of the Conservative Party then feel better able to, you know, do something that does deal with these crises differently and potentially potentially more successfully. Although, again, as I said, there is no way of dealing with these fundamental crises whilst maintaining the structure of class relations, the class division of society, whilst maintaining capitalism, basically. Um, and that is really, you know, what we should be thinking about. But, hey, in the meantime, we have lots of other struggles that are going on outside of the very narrow range of uh, electoral politics, which is also quite exciting. And if we do see solutions to this crisis emerging, I think it will come from from there, from the grassroots, from the labour movement, from kind of organic sites of struggle. A bloody men. And we are going to talk about some of that shortly with our next two guests. Grace, what an absolute tour de force as per. It's what I expect. That's the Grace Blakely special. So... Served up for the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to see you. And, and just quickly before you've got your writing, because we're both going through book trauma at the moment. You're writing yeah. a book. When's do we know when it's when's it out? What's happening? So my book will be out next year, kind of May, April time. Um, and it is about kind of about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, really. It's about planning within capitalist societies. So we're told that there's this distinction between like free market societies on the one hand, they're capitalist and centrally planned socialist societies. My argument is. Capitalism has a lot of centralised planning within big businesses, financial institutions, states, etc. And that what differentiates capitalism from socialism, capitalism isn't about free markets. It's about the dominance of society, rule of society by capital. Um, and that socialism is democracy. It's rule by for the people. So it'll be a big one. <laughs> Cannot wait. We will talk to you directly, obviously, at the time about that. It's going to be another phenomenal book. Can't wait. All right. Lots of love you. Take care. Uh, uh, you're very annoyed you're not going to Labour Conference and going through what I we know. have to go through. I'm not yeah, have fun. My book. <laughs> well, prioritise well-being over that. Lots of love, Grace. <laughs> Speaking of it, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Lovely stuff from Grace, as per usual. Now, because I've got to go to Labour Party Conference, so I'm going to bring in our next brilliant guest. We have, that's me again, just, just adding myself, doubling myself, cloning myself. One is sufficient, I feel, at this point. We've got James Schneider, who used to work with Jeremy Corbyn, and now has... Hold on before I bring in Mish, Mish, uh, Mish Rahman there, just leaving him hanging. One second. We ha- he has a brilliant book, which is called Our Block, How We Win. Love the design, by the way. Very, very chic, James. Very, very chic. chic. Mish Rahman, who was on Labour's NEC, and is a stalwart socialist and fighter for democracy within the Labour Party. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Great to have you both. Just two quick questions, you both. James, just do a little pitch for your book, which everyone has to go and buy. What is it? Yeah, it, it, it's very short and it's very cheap. So go and buy it. <laughs> no, the actual con- yeah, There we go. Move on. 
Uh, no, just quickly, the content. The content. Yeah, yeah, the content of it. Um, it's a strategy for how we win for the post-Corbyn left. Uh, my argument is that um, we might have felt quite defeated and quite depressed over the last couple of years, but actually the, the ruling class, they don't have a clue what's going on, all the stuff that you and Grace were just talking about. And the, there is a sort of social democratic majority in the country. Most people, if you look at the polling, they want all the things that we're putting forward. They want much higher minimum wage. They want higher taxes on the rich. Uh, they want public ownership. They want intervention into the economy. And that, but right now we don't have political leadership. So what we need to do is bring together all the different movements, trade unions, environmental movements, anti-racist movement, feminist movement, and so on with the bits of politics that we still have, with the good people that there are in the Labour Party and elsewhere, into a block, into a left block, and advance through. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mish, um, great to have you, by the way. Um, now, I just want to ask a very quick question because in the elections for the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, you narrowly didn't get back on, which is a huge travesty. I voted for you. Uh, but, you know, the left did actually quite well, given the fact that we've hemorrhaged party members on the left, which is, I think, the reason you weren't um, re-elected. But one just above you, Naomi Wimborne Idrissi, and also, obviously, a left candidate, was elected, but now she's been suspended from the Labour Party for speaking at a prescribed group, which I think she's spoken it before it was prescribed, natural justice in the Labour Party. So, Mish, I'm just asking, will you, do you now take her place or are they going to keep her suspended in limbo to make sure that the left has less people on the NEC is what I want to ask. Oh, Mish, we can't actually hear you. Hold on. And so we've got, oh, can we hear you now? Mish, speak. No, still can't hear. We'll sort that out. We will try and sort out Mish's sound. But in the meantime, we'll keep speaking to James. It's, oh, yeah, he's turning it off. James, quickly, let me just, I'll, I'll just, we'll come back to Mish. It's fine. We've got James here. So, Mish, uh, sorry, Mish. Hey, Mish. James, in terms of uh, Labour's response, let's just hear from John McDonnell, who used to be the Shadow Chancellor. Here's his response to the mini. The cut of the 45p rate benefits the richest 1% in our society. Combined with lifting the cap on bonuses and his attack on those on universal credit, does he not realise that this is the most socially divisive budget in a generation? And has he not looked at history of engineered booms of this sort, which in the 1960s, the dash for growth 
created catastrophe in our economy. The barber boom of the 70s created unemployment, and the Lawson boom eventually created chaos. The only benefit which each of those three engineered booms resulted in the fall of, of a Tory government. So that was the former Shadow Chancellor under Jamie Corbyn. Let's just hear the current Shadow Chancellor, Rachel. Because where have the last 12 years left us? Lower growth, lower investment, lower productivity. And today we learn that we have the lowest consumer confidence since records began. The only things that are going up are inflation, interest rates and bankers' bonuses. And borrowing. As, <laughs> as the Tories become more and more detached from reality, millions of people, millions of our constituents, are lying awake at night, worried about how they're going to make ends meet. Now, in terms of Labour's response, um, so this is from Sam Coates at Sky News. Sources in Labour's Treasury team say they want to look at the OBR forecast before deciding whether to promise to reverse the additional 45p rate. In other words, under current plans, this ain't happening anytime soon. I'm just wondering what you think of Labour's response. Have they responded to a budget, which I think both of us would regard as naked class war? John Mack is still the People's Chancellor, clearly. You can see the massive divide between those approaches. And it, that really boils down to what's the difference between a left approach and, uh, and a centre-left approach. And the centre-left approach is the traditional Labour approach, which goes something like this. The Tories are bad managers with bad values, but we Labour, we're good managers with good values. So you can trust us to seek national interest and then not actually say why something is really wrong. Just be like, oh, the Tories have not really done a very good job of managing it. Whereas the, the left approach, which you see from John Mack, is this is giving money to rich people and taking it from everyone else. You are doing class war. And one of those is a good communication strategy like anyone could understand it and they know which side you're on and the other one is is you know not terribly effective but i think um the starmer team will be very happy with this budget because it does play nicely into their strategy their strategy has been consistent since he became leader which is don't frighten the horses try to not do very much and wait for the other side to implode and then you take over and I write about this in the book. I call uh, the Tories and Starmer's Labour capitals A and B team. And, you know, basically it's the B team approach. They're playing second fiddle and they're waiting for the first violinist to break a finger. And the Tories are now breaking all of their own fingers. So he, he stands a chance of taking over. And the Tories are opening up the dividing lines for him. So he and Reeves can basically stand still and say things should basically stay as they are right now, which we all know is, you know, Things are crap now this, you know, and, and are going to get worse. It's woefully insufficient. But from their kind of narrow political calculus, now's not the moment for them to take you know, massive risks. I think that's what they'll do. Although whenever they think there should be political risks, who knows? I mean, they, they, they never seem to, to take them. One of, one of the interesting things is, so if we look back at the Conservatives introducing austerity in 2010, when borrowing, it was cheaper to borrow than it is now, it's now, but they, they said, we've got, to, we've got to do austerity, otherwise we'll end up like Greece, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now borrowing costs are higher and they've just abandoned any sense of the deficit or anything like that. In fact, the deficit and debt, which were made the centrepiece of British politics by George Osborne, um, the Tories have abandoned that. But Labour haven't now. 
it's the, the people who keep going on about the deficit, about borrowing and all the rest of it. It's the Labour Party. What do you th- what do you make of that? So their their strategy is to not frighten the establishment. And so if they trot out sort of quite trite and discredited in economic theory and in, in the public um, lines that basically are saying, don't worry, we won't do that much, that means that the establishment are not going to attack them so much. And it also means, I think, that they will be perfectly comfortable with what you know, whatever the trust plan is now, which is either going, it's got to be one of two things. It's either throw everything at the wall and call an immediate election and hope that people believe that you throwing everything at the wall will make things better and the impact isn't yet felt. So it's an election taking place in theory rather than reality. Or they desperately hope that somehow this stimulus does grow the economy and in two years time they'll look good, which is very unlikely. But from the point of view of the establishment, <clears throat> those are fine. Either those work, fine. If it doesn't work, also fine. Because they'll just, they'll get all these handouts for two years. They'll get given everything. And then the ne- and then they'll get a minority Labour government that won't really undo them. You know, they, 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 they'll, they'll still be allowed to carry on with the hundreds new oil, uh, fossil fuel licences, which are disastrous. I mean... Antonio Guterres saying that anybody who wants to have new oil and gas, these are the dangerous radicals. I mean, that's, for, for me, the, the most catastrophic element of what Truss and Kwarteng are doing. It is even more than the socially divisive, social disastrous is planetary destruction, throwing more fuel on that fire. Um, but they know that those are not going to be undone when a new Labour government comes in. They just maybe won't grant even more of them. And so they've got a kind of two year bonanza and then either it does work enough for the Tories to carry on and their bonanza can continue or things will basically stay the same, but in total crisis. We're just going to try and miss Raman one more time. We can't speak to Mish now. We're going to interview you for our annual Labour Party conference video. Always a delight. Mish, speak, say something. Hi, Owen. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Fantastic. Uh, sorry about before. We're at the, we're on top of the TWT building, and the reception is well, well dodgy. But just in response to your earlier question, so just quickly, the, that's the World Transform. For those who don't know, it's a it, it gets together talks, speech speakers, discussion groups, like all the big things in society. It's uh, taking place in in Liverpool. If you're in Liverpool, go along. Mish, carry on. Yeah, and in just in response to your earlier question, so what's happened is uh, obviously Naomi has been suspended. But that doesn't mean that uh, somebody else will come on automatically. What will happen is if a person resigns or is expelled or leaves the Labour Party, then what uh, then what happens is the next person that was the runner-up will be counted back because it's STV, so they'll recount who is the runner-up and they will be put in. Now, it, I've heard cynics like myself and others say uh, that if they were to make this move and suspend somebody who's on the left or get rid of them. But likelihood will be the next person will not be somebody on the left. It will be somebody uh, from the right wing faction who will replace them. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't suspend them. Now, obviously, speaking to a prescribed organisation can result in expulsion. So the the likelihood is that there could be an expulsion in the mix. So if that does happen, then they will be counted back. But if it was going to be a left-wing person replacing somebody who's coming from the left, then 
cynics would say the Labour Party probably wouldn't do that. Maybe there is benefit to another faction. But it's just in terms of party democracy in general. Um, now, K- under Keir Starmer's leadership, not a lot of love here. So someone came in Buckley and Steeper chat to think Keir Starmer, a man who has less personality than a mannequin, is likely to be the next PM, how far this country keeps sinking. But obviously, our objections are political, not not personality, which is just as well. So it's just in terms of, you know, what what's happened to internal party democracy, bearing in mind that Keir Starmer's entirely deceitful leadership campaign was about democracy in the Labour Party in a broad church, it'll be great, and then waged all-out war. So what, what's what's happening? Where's, where do we stand with party democracy? Well, I think it's clear for everybody to see where the, the standards uh, in party democracy are not the standards that were promised by Keir Starmer, somebody who came in to say that they were going to unite the party, somebody who said that they will involve the left, somebody who said that they're a trade unionist, uh, they're going to represent trade unionists, and somebody who said that they're not going to take out the left or they're not here for a factional war. But we've seen everything that he said that was not going to happen did happen. Uh, And we've seen uh, a strong, even at conference today, we're hearing of a batch of expulsions of delegates who haven't been able to make it now whether that happened out of magic because it was on the eve of conference or whether these people were being investigated already. We don't know this, but it's pretty suspicious that these people were seem left-wing delegates and they've been suspended or expelled and stopped from going. So this is, uh, when it comes to Labour Party democracy, we are probably at uh, our worst time. Uh, this right now, there isn't democracy. It's, it's an authoritarian leadership who is clamping down and str- making sure that, I mean, the the message seems to be that the more the, the more members there are, the harder it is for somebody like Keir Starmer and his faction to govern. So the, the idea seems to be to streamline the membership into something that's manageable, out with the democracy. Members are members are a nuisance, uh, and we we get the party into power. We don't need the members, which obviously is so 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 wrong. Well, indeed, Rachel Reese, for example, said that 100,000 Labour Party members leaving was actually a good thing because they didn't share Labour's values. And then, of course, welcomed in a Tory MP defected, saying his values hadn't changed, the Tory's, value, uh, the Labour, the Tory's values had changed, suggesting that he remained committed to the values he stood on the 2019 election, whilst socialists are not welcome in the Labour Party, but Tories are. Um, J- James, in terms of David Barrow to ask, he talks about the left being very fractured. He asked about the prospects of John McDonald uh, becoming Labour leader. I tried that myself about six times since I was about 21 to make him leader. It hasn't quite panned out, unfortunately, yet. Um, but the point he's making is really important about the Labour left being fractured. I spoke to a campaign group MP yesterday. The socialist campaign group, for those who don't know, is the left faction of MPs in the Labour Party. Basically, so the campaign group has no cohes- cohesion, no real strategy. It's very fragmented. MPs, anyway, are very individualistic, regardless. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of hanging together for warmth. But there's no real strategy. What, what do you, where do you think the Labour left is at, just being brutally honest? And is there any prospect of kind of being a bit more cohesive? So the Labour left is a little bit depressed, and it shouldn't be. Not because not because the left is doing well in the Labour Party. It's not. Not because the Labour Party is going to do lots of excellent left-wing things that's going to make us happy and win an election and transform lives. But because as part of a wider left and a wider set of progressive forces, there's a, actually a very big potential for change, right? The, it, it, there's almost everybody in the country 
is experiencing some level of a, of a similar thing. Of course, it's better and worse for, for different people, but everyone can see that everything is going up. They can see their energy bills are going up. They can see the prices of all their groceries are going up. They can see that the temperature is growing up and we had 40 degree heat in the summer and all of that stuff and that their pay is going down. And, you know, bankers' bonuses are going up. Profits are going up, but, bankers, but their pay is going down. And that is a unifying thing that the overwhelming majority of people in the country are feeling. And they don't think it's fair and they don't like it. You look at the polling, they don't like it. You look at the budget, people don't like it. And what I think we're beginning to see is uh, you know, a growing wave of resistance along different strands. So you know, we're, we're starting to see quite a lot of strikes and we're going to see way more strikes because anybody that is organised enough to be able to say, no, I don't want a 5, 10, 15 maybe percent pay cut and worse conditions is going to fight back and is going to say no. So we're going to have a, a big wave of that. People can't pay their energy bills already. They're all already well over a million people who can't pay their energy bills. And that's, that's only going to go up. And there's the don't pay campaign around that. The number of people that are willing to put their bodies in the line to occupy things, to sit in places that they're not meant to be and not go away because of the climate crisis, trying to stop these new fossil fuel licenses, to stop this, the death wish, the death spiral of this, uh, of this government. And also the other thing that we saw a lot in the pandemic, I think is going to come back, is people really like to help each other, mutual aid, solidarity in communities. And okay, the Labour left uh, frontier within the Labour Party is quite difficult, but we're all connected to all of these things, or we're connected to some of these things. And those also have big purchase into ordinary people because they are of them and they are for them. So I think that while we have to try to hold our position in the, in, the, in the Labour Party as the left of the party, we should spend a lot of time looking outwards, building those movements and trying to connect them so that when we're fighting against the cost of living, we're also fighting against the climate crisis. And that when there's one group protesting something, it builds onto the strength of people organising in, in another sphere. And we have a big potential for that, I think. We don't know what the political vehicle will come and when it will come and when that big moment, that big surge to change things will happen. But it absolutely has to happen because you can feel it. It's like, um, you know, the, the, the temperature of the country is, is boiling because people's lives are being made worse and worse. And there isn't, they, don't, they haven't invented something to blame it all on that actually works. Nish, because we're running out of time, just because I have to get a train to Liverpool to go to Labour Party conference, lucky me. Cheer us up, Labour left. Just cheer us up. Say something. Why be optimistic? So, I mean, there is, there is, as James said, there's plenty of reason for our optimism. Uh, obviously, the Labour Party, uh, they are, especially yesterday following the budget, when we had the Labour Party shadow councillor, who wouldn't confirm whether she'd reverse the millionaire's tax cut. Uh, but we, we ourselves as working class people, uh, you said we haven't got, a, we, we end up with a real time pay cut. Uh, we've got a reduction in universal credit. We've got unaffordable increases in energy bills, as James said. Forget don't pay, people can't pay. And, but still, the, the reason why the left are in with a good shout is because the trade unions are fighting back, workers are fighting back, even the likes of, uh, the trade union leaders are saying that they're going to cut funding. And at conference, this is why Momentum and ourselves, we are fighting for the Labour for Labour motion that's going to 
commit the party to oppose real terms, pay cuts for workers and Labour MPs and front benches. We're going to show solidarity with striking workers and we're going to attend picket lines and vocally support strikes. So this, this movement could be a defining time for the left where we are, are going to be showing common sense uh, leadership, common sense politics. Uh, we're going to see Labour campaigns uh, existing against anti-trade union laws, which is one of the reasons why quasi Karteng has probably cracked down on the on the trade unions because we are doing well, hence the crackdown further. So it's really important for the left, outside uh, the Labour Party, and inside, I think, uh, also, things aren't really that bad. The recent NEC result, although I didn't get in, still we did get four left-wingers uh, elected when uh, we were expecting uh, possibly a worse result. So, yeah, the fight for public ownership is our fight. And I think that's 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 where it will be. Comrades, it's been a real pleasure. I would carry on this discussion, but just don't want to miss my train. No, just, you know, I wouldn't want to miss a second of Labour White Conference. <laughs> oh, dear. But I'm looking forward to seeing you both. I will say, I, I could see, I could see, say, that, say plenty, that again, Joe. plenty to enjoy. It's Britain's best city. It, well, it's up there with Manchester. I agree with that. Um, I am looking forward tomorrow. I uh, just quickly. Oh, actually, I'll talk about this one. I'll just let you both go. I will see you both in Liverpool. I'm very much looking forward to see you both. We'll get through this. We can do this. We've all absolutely you know, with the dentist. This will be more painful. We're going to get through it. Everything's going to be fine. Just finally, again, get James Schneider's book, Our Block: How We Win. It will cheer you up. It's very practical. Obviously, James is a very practical guy. That's what you'd expect. Um, so I just go and buy it now um, if you're watching or listening and spread the word right just, just, just before I go Owen if you are a delegate at conference uh, make sure you vote for the workers rights in the priority ballot on Sunday as the first Tell everyone you know. yeah go on what, what were you going to say James as well well vote that as the first preference in the priorities ballot and Verso currently have like 40% off on the book. If you go to their website, buy it, buy it today. It's a conference special. Type in, James Type in James Schneider Verso and you'll find it. All right, guy, guys, uh, lots of love. I will see you in the People's Republic of Liverpool. Lots of love. See you, comrades. Take care. Great stuff. Um, yes, yeah, so I am going to uh, be speaking at... I was doing... A show on Tuesday, but it's sold out. <laughs> I just want to just um, sounds like a humble brag there. I'm just pointing out I can't tell you to go to that. Um, but I am speaking at um, Medicines for the Many, uh, which is I'm just double checking the time because I will get this wrong. So if you are in Liverpool, you don't have to be a Labour Party conference delegate, you can just be anyone who's just in Liverpool. I'm speaking at one o'clock till 2 30. Just type in Owen Jones Medicines for the Many in Google or go on the World Transformed website. There are better speakers than me speaking, including Navenda Mishra, who is the MP for Stockport, which is where I'm from. So that's good. Uh, who's a Labour whip. Interesting. On the left, and a whip for Labour Party. Ooh. Um, so I better go and get my... I've got to go. It's annoying because Avanti or whatever, the tra it's, it's a mess, the train system. So I have to go via Birmingham to Liverpool. It's a bit annoying, to be honest. That's where I have to rush. Um, but we are doing Labour Party conference video, uh, which we always do. And I'm going to post on Patreon now, patreon.com forward slash Joe's 84 to get your suggestions on what we ask MPs. We're going to run after MPs. 
and uh, maybe ask them, you know, what's Keir Starmer's leadership campaign entirely honest? <laughs> uh, then we're going to Conservative Party conference in Birmingham because I just thought I'd just inflict as much trauma on myself as I can. Uh, again, I'll post about that and get your suggestions on Patreon. You, as I say, keep the show on the road. Anyway, so we've got our video coming up. It will be great. We'll run after MPs and yell at them. We'll ask them questions, um, which we will ask you for. And uh, we'll do our Tory Party conference video. We've got an interview with Peter Oborn next week about Liz Truss. He's the former Conservative commentator at the Daily Telegraph, resigned on a point of principle. Um, great guy. You might be familiar with his work, so we'll talk to him. And, um, yeah, so I will see. I did it on a Saturday because I've got to go to Liverpool. That's why I'm doing it now. But I will be next... Oh, I'm in Oslo next week for a for left-wing conference. I'm not just going on holiday all the time. Um, we'll work it out. Maybe we'll put the Peter Oborn video on Sunday. We'll work it out. But we'll have the Tory party video will come out the Tuesday after that, or the Wednesday, Wednesday after that. Labour party conference video will be out this Wednesday. So look out for Wednesday. And you will see our video. Great. All right. Lots of guys. Press like on YouTube. Press subscribe. Support us on Patreon. Thanks for the Super Chats. Lots of love, guys. Going to get the train. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.